we do a lot of fishing under the bridge. Yeah. One of my uh, my ex-brother-in-law lost his wallet. Boom, she went and went to piss. Three years later, and these fellas will tell you that, he was fishing over there and hooked it up and he's been through three fights. And he's hooked the damn thing up in the same spot he's lost it. No joke. Around Woodburn in northern New South Wales, John here is known universally as Butcher. We meet out the front of the Rod and Reel Hotel on Woodburn's Main Street, the old Pacific Highway. It's sunset and the rainbow lorikeets are making their evening racket. Butcher tells me that since the big gum trees across the road were put in a decade ago, hundreds of the parrots have made a home there. Half the town loves them, says Butcher. The other half hates them. Standing on the deck during peak flood at the end of February, the water would have come up to about two metres above our heads. Anyway, I left me walking the keys sitting on the, on the table, which was an airlet, and um, I thought, I can't move my car, so my car went under, you know, and I watched it, you know, the lights go beep, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, we, 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 uh, when the flood went down, I went back over. The table must have lifted up and sat down and my wallet and his keys were sitting still on the table. <laughs> Butcher has an easy sense of humour. It's all smiles out here on the balcony of the Rod and Reel. But the dozen or so locals who have turned up here this afternoon represent pretty well everyone who is left in this town of 800-odd. Almost every house has had to be gutted, and residents have been scattered to emergency accommodation and evacuation centres throughout the region and beyond. Butcher himself is living in a tent in his living room. More than 4,000 houses in the Northern Rivers have been rendered uninhabitable, and more than 1,200 people are still in emergency accommodation more than two months later. But our, our problem here now is, is finding housing for people that have been displaced from Woodburn. You know, a lot of them have been housed in Evans Head, and look, some people have either given up places for nothing or they're, they're charging a minimal rent. But unfortunately, Easter's coming up, and then they want to kick them out. And where do they go? Daniel is the publican here, has been for 13 years. He's been a resident in the region for most of his life and has seen his share of floods. It's a flood-prone area, so he's used to it. The flood in February was something else, though. You've never seen anything like it, to be honest. To, to walk in and see walk-in freezers upside down, every fridge in the place had popped up and fallen over, stock smashed all over the place. It was... We just walked in and went, oh, my God, like, where do you even start? And I remember my dad saying to me as we walked in, he said, if you don't know where to start, just start. And that's what we did. So there aren't any residents living in the town now? Not many, no. What's it like being in a ghost town? It's eerie, yeah. Over night time here, if you drive around, you'll only see one or two lights on in houses. It is completely empty and it's just really eerie. The previous benchmark flood was in 1954. In February, the record at Woodburn, which sits on a bend in the Richmond River, wasn't just beaten, it was smashed by nearly two metres. A whole story. Dozens of people, cars and even horses were pinned in the middle of the Woodburn Bridge as the water level rose. That bridge is just a few hundred metres from the pub and it towers over the largely flat landscape. I don't think you can ever forget, and if you have a look at that bridge from here, you know, we're talking about 15 metre clearance from where the river is now to the top of that bridge. That is an enormous amount of water, certainly something I thought I would never see, something I hope I never see again, but something we definitely need to keep in our mind as we rebuild that that is a possibility. Daniel says he and his wife thought long and hard about whether they ought to reopen the pub at all. He told us he felt he had to do what he could to open the doors again because if the pub dies, the town dies with it. But Daniel worries about the viability of his town. 
yeah, I mean, look, if it's going to happen with regularity, no, I don't think there, there is survival. And, and that certainly plays on my mind. If this is the one event that we see in the next 25, 50, 100 years, well, yeah, we can survive that. The problem is, obviously, with uh, climate change and the uncertainty of that, is the fact we've seen this, you know, a, 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 the result of climate change? Are we starting to see that? And if this starts to happen with regularity every couple of years, no, I don't think communities can, can do, bounce back. Do you think climate change has arrived? I absolutely think that we are blind if we think that it hasn't arrived and we are starting to see it. I'm Tom Melville, and this is Disaster Country, a Voice of Real Australia series looking at how equipped we are to deal with the climate change-induced disasters which are already upon us. Floods, fires, drought and blistering heat have always been part of Australian life. But with rising global temperatures, are they getting worse? Are black summer and the floods in Queensland and northern New South Wales just a taste of what's to come? Prime Minister Scott Morrison declared during a tour of the Northern Rivers in March that Australia is getting hard to live in because of these disasters. So we travelled up and down the East Coast, talking to people who have lost everything as we try to figure out how to live in the disaster country. We never expected to still be in this kind of accommodation for two years. After a disaster, when the newspapers and TV crews have moved on, life doesn't go back to normal right away. The clean-up takes a long time, and people can be living in tents or emergency accommodation for months or years, to say nothing of the emotional scars which for many never go away. In this podcast, we're going to focus on the people left in a disaster's wake. <laughs> come on, mate. Come on. Danny hop. Musician Cara Cohen lives in Quorma, on the New South Wales far south coast, just a short drive from Cabago, the town made famous after a controversial visit by Scott Morrison right after it burnt down. Cara sat down with writer John Hanscom and producer Lara Corrigan on the patio at the front of a big yellow bus. Cara's mother lost her house in the fires, which tore through the area on New Year's Eve 2019. She's been living in the bus ever since. She's one of hundreds of people facing her third winter in insecure accommodation as a result of the fires. Nearly three years on, of the 467 houses destroyed in the Bigger Valley Shire, where Korma is located, only 42 have been rebuilt and had occupation certificates issued for them. I had just um, come back from uni for a break and I, like, on and off work at the bakery when I, when I do that. And so I was working at the bakery and all of a sudden, one o'clock in the morning, I'm contacting mum saying it looks like Mordor <laughs> it's time to go <laughs> and then yeah communications just kept dropping in and out so we couldn't get a hold of people our family didn't know if we were okay nobody knew if anyone was okay you guys might have seen the wall of safe that we had at the Quorma Hall where everyone was putting in you know if they knew somebody was safe and so yes the same Kara's sister Nikki lives up in northern New South Wales in Korokai, which has just seen two historic flood events. Along with almost everyone else in the tight-knit Northern Rivers community, Kara's sister's house was flooded. Like, they've lost everything. Like, the, the inside of the house, they've had to gut everything, the walls that... Last night, they messaged us telling us that the storm was rolling in and there were people in tents. And that's disgusting. Our government is pathetic that they should that anyone should be in a tent 
this many days after the flood and when they knew that there was more rain coming. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I so didn't think I'd get this upset talking about it, but there you go. Um, and yeah, I know that that's what's coming for, for not just for my sister and her, and her husband, but for everybody in Korokai, their life is totally changed. And Kara knows what to blame. Their climate disasters, I think, would be the correct term. We've really let down the kids, haven't we? We've been being told for so long that this is what was going to happen, that natural disasters would become bigger, longer-lasting, more ferocious, spread over the larger areas and more, more frequent. And I don't know, our government just can't get its shit together <laughs> when it comes to climate change policy, let alone actually doing anything. Kara started a GoFundMe to help people like her sister, people hit hard by the February and March floods. She says the response from Korma locals, people still living in the wake of their own disaster, was amazing. It's nearly $6,000 that people around here have, have given, and it really is pretty much all local people, lots of them fire affected, lots of them people who... The first person who donated, I don't think she'll mind me saying her name, was Letitia Carroll up the road, who lost her home in the fires. First, like, within seconds, she was like, I'm on it, I'm there. Even people who couldn't afford to donate, I've been taking this card. I don't know if I've got it in here. I hadn't even, like, because I've been so busy, I hadn't even had a chance to read them until the other day, and I read them, and I was like, oh, people really do care. What's your message to the people up north? Ah, uh, yeah, it's going to be hard. <laughs> I, can't, I can't lie and pretend like it's not. I keep... Mum and I keep, you know, when we're going through the various just inane things that you have to do when you're living in this kind of temporary accommodation. I mean, people call it glamping. They say, oh, you're glamping. <laughs> I haven't had running hot water in two years. Our bathroom is at the other end of the property in a container. You know, things are going to be so hard for them. I guess all I can say is that to take heart that people do care and that they should reach out for help. They should ask because it's been amazing the way that that's something that mum and I took heart from the whole time through this process. The amount of people have just been like, oh, I'll help. I'll come. People are good. Innately, people are good and they will help. This is the sound of the army packing away stretches at the Southern Cross University basketball court in Lismore. A few weeks ago, hundreds of people filled this space, seeking refuge from the region's worst flood to date. Now, almost all of those people have moved on, either returning home or have found more suitable emergency accommodation elsewhere. When I visit, there's just one person left. Sitting on a plastic chair with her four dogs around her, she casts a lonely shadow. She doesn't want to be recorded or named, but she tells me this will be the seventh time she's had to move evacuation centres in just the last six weeks. And now she's headed down to Korokai with the rest of her family. She doesn't know what day it is. She doesn't know how long it has been since the floods robbed her of most of her belongings and her home. She doesn't know how many more times she'll have to move. She doesn't know when she'll be able to go home. Six months? A year? Longer? The region around Lismore, the Northern Rivers, 
runs from the Queensland border in the north to an hour or so south of Grafton, a few hours north of Sydney. It's home to rugged subtropical wilderness and pristine beaches. It's also, as everyone up here points out, prone to flooding. They're used to it. But the deluge that struck the area in late February was the worst on record. Another major flood just a few weeks later wiped out a lot of the clean-up work people had done. People had to start from scratch. So you want to go up or down? Well, let's, let's go up first, I guess. Come on up. The road into Korokai, a town of about 1,200 just southwest of Byron Bay, takes you through ruined cane fields with fences sagging with flood debris. Cars were tossed here and there by the water and sit abandoned on the roadside. The whole landscape has been painted brown with mud. Korokai was cut off for days by floodwater and dozens of homes were lost. Mountains of waterlogged rubbish, couches, mattresses, washing machines were shucked from living rooms and piled onto the street. Some piles we pass are tagged hazardous or have asbestos warnings on them. House after house, street after street was inundated metres above the previous flood record. Houses which saw water barely come up above a few stairs in the 2017 floods had waist deep water on their second storey. Inside the wall, this is probably one of the highest bits of the house, so kind of got knee deep in other parts. This is Russell. He's the rural fire service captain for Korokai, and he showed us around his home where he lives with his wife and three kids. The water was higher than anything he's seen before, and everything inside his house had to be thrown out and the internal walls torn off. All of this was piled out the front, and a truck came and took it away. He doesn't reckon most people understand the scale of the destruction here. I don't think they do. I think people believe that they do. But when you walk into these towns and people will point to houses and say, this house would never get flood water through it, you know? And then so many people that were out of flood zones built their house two metres above one in hundred flood levels and still got a metre through their homes. So, you know, it's just more than what anyone could comprehend. Russell doesn't appear to be too worried though. He shrugs when you point out that while this event might have been incomprehensible, it also mightn't be the end of it. You've got two options. You can you know, go into despair or power on and, and work towards the light at the end of the tunnel. Try to make things better than wait for them to get better. I think the busiest ones cope the best. The ones that have the most to do, that are you know, helping others and, and active the whole time, they've got less time to sit down and, and just be with their own minds. So they, they seem to cope with it better. What happens now? Rebuild. Go again. Wait for the next one and hope it's not as big. Really. Outside, I talked to his 14-year-old stepdaughter, Taja, who I find using the pressure hose to get rid of the layer of mud which has settled in their garage. How old are you? 14. She tells me that between the floods and the pandemic, she's missed a whole lot of school. I'm in year 10 and I'm meant to be doing a lot of stuff on my year 10 certificate, but I'm obviously falling behind a bit. Yeah, oh jeez. A bit more than my whole year because I'm here helping out, cleaning, and also because the roads get flooded very easily when there's a lot of rain. I haven't gone in a while. I only started back, not last week, the week before, and then it flooded again, but yeah. Russell seems upbeat. Yeah, he's, I guess, I don't know. He had to get used to it and he had to stay calm. For you guys? Yeah, and for the whole town, because he's captain yeah. of the Korokai Fire Station. And he was helping everyone. He had to stay calm for them, yeah. You wonder that like when, it, when everything dies down and you have a moment to think, I don't know, it feels like there's a long road left. 
Yeah. Okay, like when we're not here, when we stay at the place that we have to temporarily stay at. Um, I don't know, I worry a lot about this place because I don't want something to happen to it. Because already something's happened. Yeah. No one missed out this time? Before it was just the lower people and because our neighbour, he was like, I think he was 76 and he couldn't get out because all the pressure on the water and anything that saved him was his phone light saying goodbye to his daughter. And then the SES guys, there's a telephone there. And they came over and saved him. So we're happy about that. Yeah, um, that's amazing. Yeah, but otherwise we've been evacuated. We started off at the university in Lismore. Mm -hmm. Damien peeks his head out of the tent as we walk past. His French bulldog, Yoda, barks at my microphone. His is one of a dozen or so tents pitched outside the Korokai Uniting Church. After being handballed between evacuation centres a few times, he and his fiancée are grateful that the church has told him he can stay here as long as he needs to. The first month it was overwhelming. But once you come to and so many kind people come out and helped us, and there's come out and helped bring us that there's a future ahead, that it's, 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 more, it's still there, but you still have a bit of hope, you know what I mean? Oh, anyway, I keep telling myself that it's, I've got lots of things for the future anyway. I've got lots of plans. How are you feeling? At the moment, it's, it, it's, this is a plain feeling because you get a moment of joy because you see something happening around you, but, but you see so much other disaster around you, keep reminding you what's going on. But otherwise, it's just, it's in between happy and depressed, you know what I mean? Like, Part of the tent is leaning against a bus, which was lent to him by his boss. He's been camped out here for a few weeks with his fiancée. Their wedding was in only a few days when we meet him in March. They were about to move into a house they were building before it was destroyed by the first flood in February. He doesn't know when he'll be able to get back into it, maybe a year. For now, he's just focused on finding something a bit more sturdy than the tent. It could be a while, a little while. Yeah. But people are helping us. Yeah. Sit. You know, get his equipment there, you can't afford it. He invites us into the tent and out of the rain. <laughs> I'm more positive than my partner about it because I'm a fisherman and I like camping and yeah. I just tie it up and just do it. But when it was the cyclone night when all the tents and everything ripped and that was a bit scary at night. It's a hard slog, but somehow, and like everyone I've met up here, Damien manages to stay positive. Are you considering leaving the area? Do you have, if you have to, will you? I, mean, I know my brother is. I know it scared him nuts because he's got eight children. And he had to swim out with his children and he's had to smash the window and get his elderly neighbour out because no one expected the water to come that quick. And, they, and where they were before, the 50, even the 54 flood went up to their stairs and never went inside the house sort of thing. Yeah. So, Every brother, he's thinking about moving the area. Just somewhere on a hill, somewhere he said. <laughs> but yeah, we're moving. We're moving to somewhere safer. But at the moment, we're just going taking it day by day until some big idea comes along and where we settle down again. These are stories repeated across the region. There was already an acute housing shortage in the Northern Rivers, just like there is in many tourist areas. 
A lot of people had emergency accommodation but were turfed out ahead of the April long weekend. These are stories that are common to most natural disasters. People lose their homes, some people don't come back. Some people lose their lives. And what the experts have told us is that these disasters will get worse as the planet warms. So are yeah, we better yeah. off calling them climate disasters? Yes, yes, for well, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with those anomalies happening down in Antarctica and up at the Arctic, around about the same time that this happened. That's Christine Scott. I visit her and her partner Paul Sullivan at their clothing alterations business in Lismore as she's plastering up the cracks in the walls. People around here are good at plastering, she tells me. Paul and Christine love this place, this community. Yeah, well, it's probably, it's it's about 90 years old. Um, So, you know, you can see when they built these buildings, they built them to last for for 100 years at least. So structurally very sound, solid. And uh, yeah, so... But um, luckily, you know, this is, this is all solid brick and then cement. Yeah. There, so you know, they're, they're built to withstand tsunamis and land tsunamis and the like, so. A lot of Lismore Town Centre was built about a century ago. The buildings are lovely, in a 1920s style, high-roofed brick terraces. I notice one place with walls about a metre thick and wooden ceilings. The structural damage of those older places is limited. It's the new buildings which are completely trashed inside and many might have to come down. Paul and Christine sold their house after the big flood five years ago. They tell me they didn't want to have to go through it all again. The water came up to above the ceiling of their shop, like every business in this part of the town. They're trying to prepare for the next flood as best they can. We just have to deal with it with being sort of retailers and so on and service industries. We've just got to have modular furniture that you can move out a lot easier and, uh, and then wait for the, for the flood to go through now and then just come back in and, and clean up, fix up, and then back in again. So it's the whole of Australia. Yeah, there is no, every paradise has to pay a price for, you know, 200 years of, of industrialisation pumping carbon dioxide into the Earth's atmosphere. So you seem to be saying that there's no escape from it? Like moving, no, moving, definitely not, moving, not. moving to Brisbane won't save you? No, 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 it, it makes no difference. And it's, yeah, wherever you go to, we're, we're all just a part of, of the calamity of what it's going to cause. And it's now runaway climate change. It's no longer being contained. So, yeah, it's just dealing now with it and trying to work out a way to, yeah, survive. It, it, I just look at it as, as coming down to survival. It's just got to be aware that it's going to happen again. It could be next year. No one I spoke to wants to leave their homes. For some, it's the only home they've ever known. And even if they wanted to, it's often not economically viable. And where would they go? When I spoke to Paul and Christine as they plastered the walls of their shop and tried to get it open again, big parts of Sydney were underwater for the second time in just a few weeks. Where would they go that's safe? My name's Ruth Haggard. I was burnt out in Quorma, um, the fires over two years ago now. I'm still, I'm, I'm back in a shed, um, struggling to get a build because of lack of building materials and builders. And also, it's really about energy over two years down the track, a lot of us hardly have any energy to face off a build, which is an enormous task when you're feeling great. And just the circumstances surrounding it with building companies going under, people being ripped off by building companies. And I can't tell you the mental health issues and the exhaustion. And I've spent my life as a therapist, so I am sort of considered myself highly functioning. Back in Cormor, Ruth Hagar sympathises with people who've lost their homes in the floods. She knows from experience that recovery is a long road. 
and we're two years and we're nowhere out of the woods. And um, I think they said from the Black Saturday fires, seven, at, at 10 years, they felt they were almost back to normal. But we've had COVID. We've got building shortages, supply shortages across the world. Uh, we've got war. We've got unknown things. So 10 years for them after a fire, this flood trauma, it's going to be a minimum 10 years I see unless some amazing miracle unfolds somehow. Ruth also blames climate change for her loss. I mean, we're climate change refugees. We've got a government that doesn't recognise it. I don't even know if the next, whichever government we have, action has to happen absolutely now, globally now. It's, you know, everywhere there's floods, fires, hailstorms. We're all just seeing more and more climate change refugees. I don't know what the way out, and I don't think the government has any real understanding of the depth of the trauma that these people are going to experience that we do here and we'd love to support them with messages of hope and all the things that they probably need to know along the way. But what really struck me in the IPCC report is the mentions of Australia. So the mention that Australia is highly vulnerable to climate change to the amount of resources that Australia has in terms of renewable energy that could really be benefiting us in terms of our jobs and new industries and the fact that technology is already available for us to do that. And then the negative element of Australia being drawn out to say um, that we have had not just a reliance on fossil fuels but the fossil fuel industry has been heavily influencing our politics and that Australia is far behind the rest of the world in terms of our action. So there's so much more that we can do. We're starting from a low base. We're way behind the rest of the world, but we have huge opportunities. Amanda McKenzie is the head of the Climate Council, the independent research and advocacy body created after Tony Abbott's government abolished the Climate Commission in 2013. Okay, I'm sorry, my, I can hear my baby She's talking to us about the latest intergovernmental panel on climate change, the IPCC report. The facts are stark. As UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres put it, we are firmly on track towards an unlivable world. It is getting worse and it has been getting worse through all of our lifetimes. It will continue to get worse, but how much worse it gets depends on our level of action and particularly this decade. I can't underscore enough how the IPCC report, but scientists worldwide have said for a long time, this is super urgent, we need to deal with it, but this decade is absolutely urgent if we can't get emissions trending downwards and dramatically downwards this decade the level of climate change that we'll see through the rest of the century will be devastating so there are already devastating consequences that will occur and we are seeing them now but these could be unmanageable the way that scientists talk about it is it would not be compatible with civilization which you know, is is hard to comprehend, but that's the level that they're talking about in terms of the scale that could occur within this century. Amanda says what's clear from the science is that greenhouse gas emissions need to stop if we're going to limit climate change and the disasters which come with it. And for the Australian context, because we're so lucky, we've got so much renewable energy, we've got so much space, we can be thinking about how we use our resources, cheap renewable power, to be working on manufacturing things that the rest of the world needs. There'll be nowhere in the world where you can potentially make steel and iron cheaper than in Australia. We can mine it here. We could use our very cheap electricity 
that's renewable to then be building green steel and green iron. So that would be a big change for us to do all that manufacturing here, but it would be an amazing contribution to the world. What experts have told me is that there can be no disaster mitigation plan that doesn't involve climate action. That said, a lot of the damage has already been done, so we're going to have to adapt. But the main thing is that disasters are getting more intense and more frequent, and we're not set up to deal with that. The real problem is that we are not really addressing climate change. Uh, Look, my name is uh, Bob Debus. I uh, have served in the past in both the state and federal governments, but I did spend the years from 1999 till 2005 or six as Minister for Emergency Services in New South Wales, which is a bit relevant. Bob Debus is shocked at the lack of preparation for climate disasters. We've known for decades, he says, that things are going to get worse. We just haven't kept up with the pace of change. We have to get better at dealing with these terrible events. We have to get better at at mitigating them, and we have to get better at uh, fixing things up after they've occurred. But at another level, we have to start to attack climate change in a really dramatic fashion. I mean, all around the world, that's what we're being told. We have to address climate change. And if we don't, all this sort of stuff is going to get worse and it's going to get increasingly difficult to deal with. We've known it for 20 years. In Australia, we've done really shockingly little about it. Amanda says that it's not just floods and fires, the big terrifying disasters we've faced. Well, heat waves are what we describe as a silent killer. They kill more Australians than any other type of extreme weather event, but it's not well known. And Australians now are suffering from much longer heat waves, more frequent heat waves and more severe heat waves. And I think many Australians would now be able to look at the last few years and think, yeah, we have actually experienced some really hot and long, long heat wave periods. Bob is fed up with the debate over what we do next. It's urgent, but it's been urgent for years now. If we as a society are going to be able to deal with this climate change without, you know, destroying the lives of a great many of our citizens, then we have to have new arrangements to deal with them. We've got to innovate because the circumstances that we're dealing with are changed. It's not too much to ask, is it, that people in elected office should just acknowledge these things. I guess it's not going to happen while people still wander around pretending that floods are not predictable or continuing to cast doubt on the even the existence of climate change. Those positions are looking more and more stupid. In Lismore, people recognise that they're at the pointy end of climate change. It's clear to Paul and Christine as we stand in the shell of their shop that this is the reality now. They plan to stay, and they're resigned to the fact that worse could be on the horizon. There's a pervasive attitude of what am I meant to do? I can rebuild my house, so I'm going to focus on that. For many people, these buildings are their assets. Their houses and businesses are their future. But they're stranded assets. Could they sell up even if they wanted to? It's defiance mixed with resignation. They have to make it work, somehow. Um, I think it's just, just basically getting prepared to get knocked out again. And just grinding on, because I think the grinders are the people that actually run the... They're the foundations initially, and then everything else on top of that, the cream goes on top of the cake, so you've got to have decent foundations. And I've always just been a, a realist about things. Get on with it, just move on, and, and uh, because if, if we wake up with a negative sort of thing about this, this would just become a ghost town, literally. So I think you've just got to think about it positively and, and just be resigned that this is going to continue on 
you know, this is like set the bar of floods, I, I think. Be smaller ones in between and then just move on with it. Christine took me outside and we stood on the street surveying the damage. Every shop was completely barren on the inside, most having piles of sodden gyprock and debris out the front. It's a skeleton town, not a ghost town. It's a hive of activity, but it's still here, and the sense I get is that people wanted to remain here, despite the rising costs. You might have driven around and seen beautiful wooden houses here. Yeah, yeah they're gorgeous inside. And this is a cantilevered veranda. Press tin, is that? Press tin. See, there's no pillars that hold it up, and there's no nothing on the roof that holds it up. It's suspended from these big beams here. It's cantilevered, they call it. So it's quite unusual, and it's a beautiful old veranda. I was just noticing the beautiful glass bricks up there. I know. I love a glass brick. Do you know the tragedy of it is this all has to come down and that all has to go it, Are you going to bin it or are you going to salvage it? No, Paul and I are going to stand here and get those glass One by bricks. one. Because <laughs> they're interlocked. And they go down the whole way. Yeah, all the way. I know it's really sad, but that's what you lose. Every flood you lose a bit of your history. In part two of Disaster Country. But we have to understand as a human race that we actually don't control everything. Some things you can't adapt to. We look into disaster resilience and response. These disasters are here to stay. So how do we live in an unlivable world? We have a strategy of encouraging strength and connection amongst groups of neighbours because when push comes to shove just from a disaster response it's it's your neighbour that's going to get you out of underneath that landslip or off your roof. That was part one of Disaster Country, a two-part series from Voice of Real Australia. Reporting was done by me, Tom Melville, as well as Lara Corrigan and John Hanscom. Mixing and sound design by Lara Corrigan. Our photographer is Marina Neal. For more stories and to see images and videos, go to canberratimes.com.au or your local ACM paper. This is an ACM podcast. Podcast.